welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. Being a product master means having the influence you want and need to drive product strategy. The move to Product Master happens through this podcast and the training I provide. I have several free resources to help you make that move, and one of them is the top 10 tools and insights from the first 100-plus interviews. It will help you think like a product leader, and you'll find it at the same place where all the episodes and show notes are for all of the interviews, the past three-plus years of interviews, and that's the everydayinnovator.com. I hope you check it out. One of the things I enjoy doing is teaching product and innovation management university courses. My students often are in a leadership role in their organizations, and I'm helping them understand product innovation concepts. When we discuss examples of innovative organizations, Apple is a popular choice. It's also a good choice. They provide many lessons, such as the power of trends, why focusing on fewer products is better than scattering your efforts, the advantages of controlling an ecosystem, and the benefits of the fast-faller strategy. So when I was at a product conference and met the person who helped orchestrate Apple's original product process that is still used today, you can understand why I was excited. This was my opportunity to learn firsthand what Apple was struggling with at the time and how the new adopted product process helped them. And that person is John Carter. In addition to Apple, he has been a valued advisor to Cisco, Adobe, HP, IBM, Xerox, and many others. And in addition to innovation, he has a strong background in engineering and was the co-inventor of the Bose noise-canceling headphones. I could share a lot more about John's accomplishments, but the recommendations from employees and clients on his LinkedIn profile are more insightful. One shared, John Carter has one of the fastest and best minds you will ever encounter. At the same time, he's careful to listen and to integrate the ideas and insights of others. He's open-minded and ethical and knows what risks to take and when. If cool hand John Carter's in your corner, be prepared to win. Now, in the little time that I've known John, I agree He is one to learn from, which is why I asked him to join us and discuss the creation of Apple's product process. You'll find a summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 172. Enjoy the interview. John, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here, Chad. So we we met a few months ago at the PDMA annual conference and found out about some of your experience. And uh, as we talked more, you shared what you had done for Apple at one point. And even though this was several years ago, it was a monumental event in their history, which was creating, uh, helping to create their product process. And indeed, that process is still alive and well in, uh, in many forms. And so I thought there were some really good lessons for us to tease out there about what worked and what is continuing to work. So set the stage for us first. What was going on at Apple when you got involved with them? Well, it was a very interesting time. And, and I might uh, just uh, give uh, the uh, audience, here's some context. Um, I worked uh, closely in this situation and was personally involved with many of the leaders and executives who put this on. Some were real characters. Many of the things I'm going to talk about, I'm going to refer to two individuals. One is Jackie Streeter, and she ran the, the what was called the Central Engineering Organization at the time, basically delivering pearls, uh, uh, tools, process management, and, and other uh, 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 aspects to help teams, including the pro- uh, project management office. And then also Bonnie Collier, who I worked with closely as a collaborator on the, the post-mortem process. And because of my uh, relationship and my value of the Apple 
Apple ways. I can't talk about anything that really has not been shown in public uh-huh. or described in public. And there's some wonderful resources uh, out there written by Jackie and Bonnie and as well as some others that uh, I'll share with uh, or Chad. Hopefully you can share with uh, the, the listeners. Yeah. I'll add those links to the show notes to make it easy for people to find those resources. And I'm looking forward already to reading them myself. Yeah. Per, uh, it's fabulous. Especially the paper by Donnie, uh, Bonnie Collier. Extremely detailed. So anyway, I'm going to try and knit these uh, uh, resources together from a personal view and help uh, help the listeners really understand what was going on. Now to address your question, so what was the situation uh, at Apple at the time? Very uh, 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 very unusual and, and occurs only in a company's lifespan a couple times, and that is when they ran out of gas in scaling. Hmm. They were trying to ramp up their product portfolio, and this is something you're uh, product managers uh, face all the time, but in this case, they were trying to increase it by a factor of four. In other words, uh, quadruple the number of new product introductions per year, and they found that they just couldn't scale. The program managers couldn't manage what uh, what needed to be done, and more importantly, the executives didn't have the right kind of forum to make uh, uh, decisions to ensure the success of of this rapidly scaling company. And so it was an inflection point at the company's time. And I think a unique moment in history, they had worked with uh, four organizations before they invited me uh, out to to discuss this matter. And all four attempts had failed, some very, very large, famous firms, some very small firms. Hmm. But there was clearly... Uh, uh, urge to get um, uh, to get something in place so they wouldn't repeat mistakes, and that was the problem they were having. Okay, so so that sets the stage a little bit for the needing the the need for a new product process to really help them scale their product capability and get to you know four x new product introductions per year. So there are a lot of approaches to a product process. Many of them have something that will look like a stage gate sort of activity where we do work in stages and we review where we are. We, we move on. And even if we're doing that inside an agile environment today, we often have some kinds of phases of work. What stood out in making this product process for Apple? What, what needed to be put together? Was it heavier than they were used to? Was it, you know, what did you end up with that worked? Uh, great question, Chad. And I think uh, this really um, lies at the heart of success of why this uh, effort was successful and why it's still in use today by all product divisions. And that is that you know, fundamentally, what we put in place was very, very lean, uh, exceptionally lean, exceptionally lean in the number of deliverables, exceptionally lean in the decision making, exceptionally lean in terms of the number of phases, and exceptionally lean in terms of how issues got escalated. And I think that was, uh, uh, th- those four elements were really um uh, uh, important in our successful adoption of this because it was not so heavyweight. And uh, to give give your audience a s- kind of a sense of where they were and, and, and where they they ended up, and, and Jackie Streeter has an article that really describes this in more detail than I can do here. But the really insightful color was that there were three to four phases. You know, it was a very, very granular, uh, lightweight process. And each phase, there was one or two deliverables. So it wasn't these onerous books of uh, keynote or PowerPoint presentations that we all you know, fear 
<laughs> are fearful of and take weeks to prepare, and then we have to shop them with middle-level managers before the executives see them. That was not the case here. It was very lightweight, mm-hmm. had very few phases, and very few deliverables. But there was a, a, an exception management process that we put, put in place, which kind of captured everything that wasn't you know, um, define because you get to find everything. If you do, you end up with an insane amount of bureaucracy. So what they ended up uh, with was a very lightweight, but very um, mandatory uh, process uh, around product development that, that frankly could be codified in in a handful of deliverables and, and uh, very few phases. And I would like to dive into some of the details of that too. The, what those, what, the stages, the phases were, what was meant to be accomplished, uh, the deliverables coming out of it, if we can. And I'm curious who the deliverables were, were presented to, right? Who, who was providing oversight, the decision-making uh, for that? Yeah. Take us through the stages. Was this kind of a, a typical, you know, we're going to scope out an understanding of the problem for the customer and then do some design work and development? What did that look like? Yeah. So in the front end, it was... It- it was front-end heavy, and there's a big myth about Apple that they don't do consumer research, and that's not true at all. Uh, obviously, some of the big, bold strokes are done in the minds of, of a few executives, and that's another misconception. The iPod and, and original idea for the iPhone was generated by John Rubenstein, not Steve Jobs. Hmm. Uh, and John was VP of uh, hardware engineering when I was there at the time, um, and he came up with that concept, not Steve. And actually, it was uh, was really driven by insights that he had in working with suppliers. But putting that aside, to answer your question, there are two phases in the beginning, the investigation phase and the concept. Very typical, but the investigation phase obviously was freeform uh, and, and very open. And the deliverables there was extremely, uh, the, the end of that phase was extremely lightweight. Um, it would be a handful of pages or less that basically describe the business case, the problem that they're solving, you know, the customers. What, what, uh, what are the broad uh, brushstrokes of what the idea was about? And then there was the, the, the next phase was a concepting phase where um, very much the, the high-level design was uh, put together. And that resulted in um, – uh, a, a relatively short document that again uh, um, was finite in size and really focused on elements of predictability and, and delivery. Mm-hmm. So agreement on the fine details of the project and, and uh, kind of uh, what, where, why, and how. And then, um, then there was the development phase um, and uh, it ended with a deliverable that pointed towards the test plan and the go-to-market plans. Uh, and in a relatively short validation phase, and then they ramped from there. So real emphasis on the front end, tight control on the development design uh, phases, um, a, a significant but not drawn out validation, and mm-hmm. then uh, a ramp uh, to end with. So there wasn't a lot of fine, fine grained management of the teams, but if they got into trouble in any one of those phases and they went, quote, unquote, out of bounds, in other words, they violated the contract that was agreed to, the contract, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. between management and the team done at these these reviews, these executive reviews. Um, the team had a short path to get resolution, and that was very helpful for reducing time to market, which they really did in this, this effort. Regarding who was involved in these, 
these reviews. They weren't really called stage gates or phase reviews. Uh, they were simply management reviews that took place. Uh, and they were team-on-team reviews. Um, typically, they would be a level down from John Rubenstein uh, and involve uh, the cross-functional team where the major risks uh, would be occurring. You know, typically, that's marketing and engineering and uh, quality and operations, a small group of executives who, and the way they framed it, I believe, was um, they didn't have to leave the room to make the decision. They could make a simultaneous, we called it a simultaneously binding decision. So very clean, no second guessing. Uh, and then the whole cross-functional team would be present. And typically the program manager, EPM, they call them engineering program managers, would uh, present the material along with the heavy emphasis and leadership from product marketing. That's a great nutshell of the process here and a really powerful process to work through that was light and really reflective. Just that rule of, you know, we we had the right people in the room at these reviews to make the decision without having to leave the room. It was never intended to be this way, but we see classical implementations of StageGate where the reviews are on a, a fixed schedule, like every two months or something. And whether you need, whether that meets your time frame or not, sometimes teams are sitting around not doing anything. And then there's a pause between reviews after the review meeting because decisions, other work has to get done to support a decision before you can get back to things that adds bureaucracy and links the process out. So going through that, I'm curious about the items going into the investigation phase and then moving on to concept phase. After this was put in place, and I don't know how much of this you were able to actually see, how were the products killed off, the ideas killed off through these stages. Did they kill off, have a pretty high rate, or did they really limit what was going under investigation? Um, What what did that look like? Yeah, um, Chad, unfortunately, I wasn't really close to the sausage making at a volume that would be high enough to kind of see when and where the the products would be killed. Mm -hmm. I do know in in reading some of the work uh, about John, Jonathan Ive, who runs there, uh, he's a chief design officer, Um, they they spend uh, an exor- uh, extraordinary amount of time in alternative concepts. So they probably invest more money in making mistakes early and drilling dry holes than many other companies. So I can only imagine from what I've read and know about Jonathan Ivey that, in fact, um, they do tend to kill things very early mm-hmm. um, on, on what I understand. And it's this heavy interest, heavy intersection between design and, and uh, product development and features. In fact, um, Jobs has been quoted as saying that uh, product design is more important than the actual performance of the product. Mm-hmm. And you know, to a large degree it shows. But I, I think that I get the sense they kill things early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes sense to, to me too. The, Especially when jobs came back, the, the culture of the organization was redirected to focus on fewer projects, right? Projects, you know, let's do one thing really well and be excited about that and not spread our resources over so many things. And you get there by investigating lots of options and then selecting the fewer that make the most, that are the best fit for the organization's mission and objectives where you're headed. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. 
When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us that concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master. theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. Well, I wanted to, to, to tell your audience a little bit about the the project history or post-mortem process, which is part of this development process. And, um, the reason that I, I want to describe this is it's really a backbone to enable mm-hmm. learning, rapid cycles of learning. And this is a method that we developed with Bonnie Collier, um, who, who was uh, there at the time. And uh, it's an amazing process that combines um, fact-based project history data as well as uh, uh, interview data and then uh, involves uh, creating what we call an event timeline, which is what happened when, and those would include both planned events like these major review milestones and unplanned events, um, changes in direction, for example, or loss of team members or what, whatever they might be. And what the team does in a cross-functional fashion is then figure out which of the biggest events that were unplanned and then what are the root causes of those events? And then finally, what to do about them. So it's a really, it's a fact-based, logical description driven by an event timeline of what the what were the stumbling blocks in the project and how mm-hmm. to fit them, fix them. And this really enabled uh, rapid learning and was, I think, one of the keys to uh, the implementation success because with a lightweight process like this, without a lot of you know guardrails, you have then a system for figuring out um, what kind of systemic problems uh, existed and can quickly address them. And what was the name of this? It's it's called the Project History or Project Retrospective Process. And Bonnie Collier uh, really wrote a wonderful article about how to perform it. And I think it's absolutely best practice. And I know it's something that used. Uh, today and and used in the ecosystem. It's not just um, with Apple, but they use it with partners as well. So it's something that has enduring value and and delivers real insight. And I like the cleanness of that process in terms of focusing on the planned events and the unplanned events. And the whole objective here is learning, right? How can we learn from this to move, to improve our process and do better on the next one? Exactly. And and Chad, as you and I know that we've been um, involved in situations where these postmortems are simply bitch sessions or blame games. That's it. Everybody just leaves mad and um, and nothing changes. And this is quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's really a positive process. It's not blame. It's oriented on what went wrong and how can we avoid the reoccurrence. Yeah. I think for many who have been in postmortems, that would be refreshing. Right. The, <laughs> right. We're, we're not playing whack-a-mole. 
Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I often think of it as the whack-a-mole approach about, okay, well, let's point fingers at who messed up and not do those things again. As opposed to just how, how can we learn from this and, and continue to do better, that spirit of continual improvement. Yeah, yeah. I just want to ask you about metrics involved in this. And as you were telling me about the story a little bit before, that it came clear there were kind of two key sets of metrics. The metrics that we probably would first think of, let's just measure the process and see if we're doing a, how we're doing as we move through our process. But this was new to a large organization that was urgently trying to face a change, right, for forexing product throughput. And that creates a set of tensions all by itself. And trying to provide something new to an organization in that environment is challenging because people don't, we, we don't run wildly into what's new and embrace it, do we? We also, when you were sharing this story, talked about metrics involved in helping with that. And so I don't know which ones you want to focus on first or which ones you were closer to, but I'm curious about metrics for the process and then how you measured acceptance and and utility of this at at Apple. Right. Uh, Great, great question. And um, this is something that we had a lot of fun in in developing. And it was one of the first reasons why I was invited out because this is uh, to visit the Cupertino campus because this is a, a passion that I have for basically measuring uh, measuring performance and measuring outcomes. And, and it started from my work at Bose. So it's, it's been a, more or less a lifelong passion. Um, the, the, we, we had these two different sets of metrics that we used, and, and we use this with many clients um, and found it to be universally accepted, although it's a little bit hard to believe that they're effective. The first is, is what we call static or result metrics, which are those that we typically look at outcomes. You know, what is your time to market? Or what is your slip rate, which is the ratio of actual to um, projected time to market um, as judged by when the product was approved to when it was actually launched? Mm-hmm. World class for that is about 15%. Um, meaning most companies do slip a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's old. Um, those are result metrics, and they're great for benchmarking because you can compare your performance to another com- uh, company's performance and use it as a yardstick. Also, percent of sales on R&D or percent of sales on marketing, these are universally applied, but, but they're slow changing, and they don't give you much insight about what to do about it real time. The other metrics uh, are what we call predictive metrics, and uh, you might call these process metrics, but they're a bit different than that, in that uh, predictive metrics basically are metrics which provide a much faster readout that can help you predict what the result metrics will be at the time a year or two later when they're actually measured. And these predictive metrics are truly amazing, and they're very lightweight, and they're very good for achieving organizational change, which we we did. And these predictive metrics, which uh, Jackie Streeter describes um, in a couple of her papers, were invaluable in getting buy-in and seeing results and making sure this change process was on track. Because what we try to do is, is really measure change by looking at changes in behavior. So do you think you're really making a difference to this process by looking at actually what people do, not what they say, uh, but rather what they do? Because if you don't change the behavior when putting in place some new uh, technique or method or best practice or next practice, 
You, you, you're not going to get the results because people have to behave differently. And so these predictive me- metrics that we put in place would change every week or two weeks. And so there'd be a very rapid gauge on whether our implementation was on track. You know, and very simple measures like, you know, are we using the new terminology that we just trained you on? And hmm. Managers and executives laughed at that as being so stupid. Um, you know, obviously people reuse the, the terms that you trained them on. Well, it turned out that we trained the wrong people. <laughs> and we found this out through the metrics, believe it or not, because the metrics weren't trending in the way that we thought was the right way to trend. And so we looked at the, those metrics and found out uh, the root causes of those and some had to do with the people in the room so or not in the room. So uh, these very simple metrics, which uh, managers initially scoffed at, turned out to be instrumental to uh, the success of these these programs and these were the predictive metrics that we found so helpful in institutionalizing change. And predictive metrics are really important to us as product managers. Sometimes those that are involved in uh, growth hacking. Someone just called me about this recently. You know how how to improve that. We look at those leading indicators to try to figure out if we do X, Y, and Z, and those numbers are going up the right way. Like maybe the, the time it takes to acquire a customer from their first contact with us, or to acquire a lead to become a customer. You know, my simple example is always, if, if you want to lose weight, standing on the scale is the outcome. Uh, it doesn't tell you really if you're heading in the right direction or not, maybe over time is all. But a leading metric would be how many calories am I eating today? Or, you know, how much am I, how many steps did I take today? That sort of thing. For this adoption metric, which I think is a good one to focus on, because when we're putting in a new process, it is challenging to get people to use it the way it was intended and, and then to be engaged in making it better, doing that project history process too. So you looked at the terminology that was being used. Are the people incorporating this into their their work, right? And that would be, if they're expressing it in terms of the terms that you provided, then we would think they would be, I guess, doing it. I guess that was a connection. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And you said you didn't train the right people first. Who became responsible for this? Well, it was, uh, I mentioned this, this woman, Jackie Streeter, and it was her primary responsibility. And I think this is one of the reasons it was successful is uh, they use a, a, a common term that we often hear, a directly responsible individual. So there was clear accountability for the success of this uh, activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and in regard to this, it turned out that the, some of the people who didn't train were in her organization. Um, and they were just uh, deemed to be too junior. Uh, mm. But it turned out they were really important uh, elements in uh, making sure that people successfully adopted and applied this these new methodologies. Yeah, so basically, uh, the, by using these predictive metrics that were, as, as we indicated, um, causal to adoption, mm-hmm. causal to effective use, these predictive indicators then allowed us, because they didn't increase, when we, we had created a target curve, and that's one of the things that I'm really keen on. I'm not fond of thermometers, and I don't use thermometers that can be gamed and you can see no idea of trend or trajectory. So the idea that uh, a predictive metric actually should have a target curve, like how quickly should adoption take place? Hmm. How quickly should a change of behavior? It's not overnight. 
Right. And uh, there's been some wonderful work done that describes how rapid organizational change should be for a new product process based on organizational complexity, system complexity, et cetera. So for all these, these target metrics, we had a, all these predictive metrics, we had a target curve. And the, we tracked the adoption through this target curve. And the actual performance deviated from the target curve a couple months or not quite that, four weeks into to adoption. And this gap between the target curve, which was instrumental as opposed to having a thermometer, and our actual performance uh, caused us to do root cause analysis. That indicated, in fact, we didn't invite some of the people that should have been invited, more junior members, but instrumental to uh, ensure that schedules were tracked and and monitored into the training. And once we did that, we, we had a rapid turnaround. This fortunately occurred very early in the process. And so we, we then used this as a way to make sure that we kept the process moving forward kind of element by element. And, and we implemented this using an inch-wide, mile-deep philosophy, which mm-hmm. is to do one thing and do it very well and follow these metrics and once these metrics are clear, then move to the next. And I've used this in so many engagements, and it served us so well, rather than putting the big three-ring binder about, this is your new Agile methodology, and here's the 700 terms you need to memorize, and here's all the things you need to do. It's like, let's do this one thing right, and let's make sure everybody does it right, and then let's do the next thing and keep adding it on incrementally with predictive metrics for each one of those inch-wide, mile-deep changes. Putting the process in a place is half the work. And then the other half is the work that you just described, which is making sure we're tracking along and doing what needs to be done, that adoption actually occurs and the process is in, indeed acted upon. Right. There's a wonderful expression that I, I love, um, which is that change management is a ground war. Mm. <laughs> in other words, you can, you can have all these town meetings and, and big sessions, but when you get down to it, There's a lot of hand-to-hand combat, meaning one-on-one meetings with executives and middle managers. And so, as you describe, it's it's half or less. (laughs) Excellent. And in terms of this uh, product process at Apple, you you said earlier that the key components of this continue to be used. This is a process that has stood up under time. Yeah, yeah, it's used by all the divisions at Apple, at least that I know of, um, from the um, the handset division, the iPhones, to the iPads, uh, to the desktops, to the mm-hmm. software, um, uh, iPods. It's basically, it is the backbone of product development uh, at Apple. Yeah, and a pretty simple, streamlined, lightweight process that provides value to the organization and the people involved. Yes, yes. So, And that's one of the reasons for the adoption. I think it worked. It solved real problems. It wasn't made up. It was practical and effective. Good. And as listeners always know, I love a good innovation quote. And you have a special one for us. Yeah, well, my first important um, career move uh, and where I spent nearly 15 years was at Bose, the uh, audio company in, in Massachusetts. I studied with Dr. Bose in graduate school, and he was my mentor and a great leader. And the company was was basically, um, I wouldn't say ruled by, but had these governing principles. And one that he used that I'll never forget is that better implies different and not the other way around. And that sounds really simple and kind of useless until you think about how 
what the implications of that are. In other words, you can't just make something better by twiddling a knob or making some random change. But in fact, all better products are different, but they're different in important and meaningful ways. And so just to make a change for change's sake and putting the Bose logo on it would never uh, would be never allowed to go into the product development process. And this had two implications, this simple quote, or the simple uh, guiding principle. The first was that it sets a bar for innovation. In other words, Bose was really looking for differentiated products. And these products had to have consumer benefit. They had to have audible consumer benefits. And then the second was it really prevented us wasting a lot of time from Me Too products where a product manager said, hey, I think we ought to add this feature or, you know, we ought to make a change in the color or the number of SKUs that we have. It was very, very useful to guide innovation. And that's why I found this quote, better implies different, not the other way around. So instrumental. It's an excellent quote. Dr. Bose had a large influence. I know uh, other students I've talked to of his at MIT thought the world of him and went on to create a very unique organization that people love being a part of. Yeah, he was a great teacher. It's a good teacher, good leader. So thank you for sharing that quote. Certainly, how can people find out about the work that you're doing if anyone would like to reach out and connect with you? Sure. I think there are three ways. Uh, First is uh, we've written a book on many of these best practices called Innovate Products Faster, and that's available from Amazon, either Kindle or print. Uh, Second is certainly our website, uh, tcgen.com. It's uh, for technology capital generation that simply goes by tcgen, and you can find out how to contact me. And the last is to look me up on LinkedIn, uh, just using my name, John Carter and tcgen. You'll get right to it. So those are three ways, and we'd love to hear from you. Also on the website, I might say that we have lots of templates and tools and other things that you might uh, find Uh, useful in in your quest to be a better product manager or product development leader. Excellent. Thank you for sharing those with us and the listeners. I will be putting the links to all those resources into the show notes for this uh, discussion. Also the links to the articles uh, you refer to with uh, Jackie and Bonnie. And those will be some good resources for everyday innovators. I hope you enjoyed this, uh, everyone listening. It was insightful for me to find out about the, the genesis of this product process at Apple and your role in that and some great resources to help us learn more and understand that. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. Once again, you'll find that summary of the discussion with John at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 172. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.